0: You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 32, for December 28th, 2008. Warning, this episode contains mature themes, graphic violence, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www metamorphcity.com. Well, hello, Metamorphs, and welcome back to another episode of the Metamorph City podcast. This is our last show for the year, and I am just starting to enjoy my Christmas vacation. I went out uh, to Santa Cruz over the weekend and spent some time hanging out with friends and just getting to uh, de-stress a little bit before I get back to the busyness of the holiday season. And uh, by the time you guys hear this, I will have flown out to Detroit, and I will be back home with family for the week of Christmas Eve to New Year's Eve, and I'm definitely looking forward to spending that time with family and friends back home, and not least of which to get the rest of the recording done for making the cut, because I've got a lot of actors back there. Before we get into the chapter for this week, I want to specially recognize two of my newest members of the Metamore City cast, uh, debuting last week was Grail Wolf, a.k.a. Mark Bailey of Grail Wolf's Geek Life, in the role of Braddock, who is not named in that chapter, but will be named at the beginning of this one. He just did a fantastic job with this character, and I think that you guys are going to love to hate him. And the other actor that I want to recognize this week is TD-0013, everybody's favorite stormtrooper from a different point of view. That's ADPOV.net. And he is playing the role of Malcolm Ardvalos. Yes, that's right. The long-mentioned and legendary crime lord is making his first appearance on screen at the end of this chapter, and uh, you'll be hearing a lot more from him uh, later on in the story. TD did a fantastic job with this character. He had exactly the voice that I was looking for, cultured and suave and refined, and, well, you'll hear it. Huge thanks to both Grailwolf and TD for their time and effort in uh, making sure that they got their voices just right for these parts, because now that we're dealing with the bad guys, you want to make sure you got the right voices for them, you know? And these two did an awesome job, so thank you very much, both uh, Mark and T.D., for your hard work on bringing these characters to to life. Can you really call it life when they're vampires? Yeah, whatever, you guys know what I mean. They did a great job, and I am really looking forward to hearing people's reactions to these characters. Now then, let's not uh, delay any longer. We'll go ahead and get into Chapter 22 of Making the Cut. And here to introduce it is your friend and mine, the uber nemesis of podcasting fiction, the one and only T. Morris.
1: Hi, this is T. Morris of Podcasting for Dummies, Moravi Remastered, and the Metamore City Podcast. You may know my voice as Evan, the better half of the Evan Ava androgyne. And I'm here to bring you, for episode 32, chapter 22, the story... So far. In the last chapter, Artex, Rebecca, and Sasha began their efforts to de-brainwash Danny Shirabi, who had fallen prey to the mysterious soul-altering powers of Jared Tamlin. Danny was initially hostile and demanded to be released, but a conversation with Sasha brought an uncomfortable fact to the surface. Danny really doesn't have any sense of her identity apart from her relationship with Jared. Danny also realized that Sasha and the others genuinely care about her and want to help her. While she's still upset at their interference, she's beginning to think about the questions Sasha raised and trying to decide what to do about them. Meanwhile, the Psy Collective elder Miriam Bakhtavar has fallen into a trap orchestrated by Victor Hinkavos, the former military operative she and her agents have been hunting. While riding the subway home after a meeting of the elders, Miriam was set upon by a team of vampires armed with clubs, chains, and stun rods. The leader of the gang bowed to her mockingly, saying they were there to offer her the job opportunity of a lifetime, so to speak. And now, episode 32, chapter 22 of Chris Lester's Making the Cut.
0: Chapter 22 Miriam watched the vampires closely, taking stock of her tactical situation. The prognosis wasn't good. Her psychometabolic powers were more than a match for an average, low-blooded street vamp, but these vampires knew who she was. If they had learned that much, they would know what she was capable of. They wouldn't send fledglings to take down Miriam. They would send the strongest thugs they could spare. The lead vampire gave her a knowing smile. Obviously, he'd seen the
2: realization dawning on her face. Well, "'This doesn't have to get ugly, Ms. bakhtavar Malcolm Ardvalas just wants to offer you a job.'
3: "'Great Maker,'
0: Miriam thought, as terror wrapped its claws around her heart.
3: "'They're going to turn me.'
0: She hoped that they would be stupid enough to try biting her while she was still conscious. A vampire's mind was disconnected from its physical brain, suspended in a sort of no-man's land between life and death, so normally telepathy couldn't affect them. The act of feeding changed that, creating a psychic bond between the vampire and its victim. A vamp could use that bond to exert its will over its captive, binding them to its control. Mundanes could do nothing to stop them, but telepaths were another story altogether. A vampire who entered a teep's mind created a link that the teep could exploit. Vamps had no defenses against a mind blast or a psychic compulsion that was force-fed to them through their own blood bond. Of course, that would only work if Miriam were still conscious. Judging from the clubs and stun rods the vamps carried, they probably already knew that.
3: Keep him talking. Look for options. And what makes Mr. Ardvalas believe that I'm interested in working for him... "'I have a very rewarding job already, thank you.'
2: "'Oh, but I think you'll find that Mr. Ardvalos can be very generous,' the vamp said, grinning. "'He's heard all about your talents. "'We've been looking for someone like you for a long time.'
0: "'Miriam eyed the windows on either side of the subway car. "'Perhaps she could break one and escape through the tunnels. "'She didn't like the odds on that. "'Her regenerative powers could deal with jumping out of a moving train.' but the problem was the tunnels themselves. The entire maglev network was kept depressurized to one-third of an atmosphere in order to cut down on friction. In the event that a train broke down, that was still enough oxygen to keep everyone alive until they could be rescued, but not enough to do anything strenuous. It would be like trying to run a race on top of the highest mountain in the
4: world.
3: Think, Marion, think. There must be a way out of this. Well, if we're going to discuss business opportunities, perhaps we should begin with introductions. You clearly know who I am, but I'm afraid I cannot say the same in return.
0: The vamp sketched another mocking bow. You
5: can
2: call me Braddock, ma'am.
3: Braddock? Malcolm Sion?
2: Braddock chuckled. (laughs) I
0: see you do know me. Miriam fought down the rising panic and nodded.
3: By reputation, at least. Mr. Ardvalos must be particularly interested in my talents for him to send such a prestigious messenger.
2: Consider it a mark of his respect. But if you know me, then you should also know that I'm a very busy man. I'm afraid I only have time to make this offer once. He extended a hand. Mr. Ardvalos wants to meet you. Come along peacefully, and you won't be harmed.
3: Out of time.
0: She looked up at the ceiling, hoping for inspiration from on high, and spotted it. It wasn't much of a plan, but it would have to do.
3: I'm sorry, Mr. Braddock, but I'm afraid I'm rather busy myself tonight. If Mr. Ardvalis would care to contact me at Westfall during normal business hours, perhaps we could make other...
0: Miriam's enhanced senses gave her only a split second of warning, but that was enough. She leapt up and grabbed the handrails on the ceiling of the car, pulling her body out of the way. The spell that one of the vamps behind her had been preparing shot through empty air and struck the vamps in front of her, wrapping them in a mesh of crackling purple energy.
3: Entanglement spell.
0: She swung her legs forward and let go of the handrails, landing in the doorway behind the pack of entangled vamps. She took off into the next car as fast as her enhanced muscles could carry her.
2: After her! And Keenan, get this thing off us, you stupid fucker!
0: Miriam's car had been six cars away from the front of the train. She made it through the first and was halfway across the second when the first pair of vamps caught up with her. They grabbed her legs and held on with a vice-like grip, letting her fall face-first toward the floor. Channeling all her available power into boosting her strength, Miriam tucked and rolled with her momentum instead of falling flat. Her somersault flung the two vampires through midair and slammed them onto their backs in front of her. She struck out, lightning fast, and put out their eyes with a pair of two-handed hook strikes. While they writhed in pain, she backflipped and regained her feet. She grabbed one of the vertical steel poles in the standing room section of the train and pulled it loose from its moorings. Wielding it like a quarterstaff, she crushed the heads of both vamps, then ran past them, continuing her run toward the front of the train. If she could just reach the control station in the front car, she had a chance of getting out of this alive. She heard two more of her pursuers closing in on her as she entered the third car, so she turned and struck out with the pole as they drew near. The vamps dodged the strike.
3: Too fast! They're just too fast!
0: And one of them, a black haired female, swung a chain at her, wrapping it around her wrist. The vamp darted around one of the vertical poles and yanked hard on the chain, using the pole as a pulley to draw Miriam into range. Meanwhile, the other vamp, a slender Arambian male, pulled a handful of reagents from his belt and started casting a spell. Miriam threw her staff at the wizard like a blunt-headed javelin, crushing several of his fingers and spilling the gents onto the floor of the train. Then she let herself move with the force of the chain, darting toward the pole faster than the female vamp could drag her there. Miriam grabbed the pole in both hands and swung herself around in a flying kick, aiming for the vamp's head. The vamp dropped to the floor, dodging the blow, and sprang back up immediately, launching a quick series of blows at Miriam's head and torso. Miriam blocked and answered with attacks of her own, even as she worked to unravel the chain from her wrist. The vamp was faster than Miriam, but Miriam was stronger. She finally got a solid grip on the woman and pulled her into a grapple, trapping the chain between them. She struck the vampire's knee and snapped it backwards, sending her sprawling to the floor. The wizard tackled Miriam from behind, but she threw him over her shoulder and sent him sailing to the back of the car, where he struck two more vamps that had just entered. Behind them were the two she had incapacitated earlier, their eyes already regrown in their sockets.
3: Fighting them takes too much time. Need to slow them down.
0: Five vamps in one confined spot. She wasn't going to get a better opportunity than this. She pulled out one of the egg-shaped reagent pods she had purchased earlier that day and threw it at the cluster of vamps. The garlic bomb exploded just over their heads, creating a cloud of fine dust that was barely visible in her black-and-white heat vision.
3: I have to remember to thank Miss Linder for that idea, if I ever see her again.
0: While the other vampires staggered and retched, Miriam snapped the neck of the one at her feet. She would regenerate quickly, but the injury gave Miriam enough time to pull a knife and a gun from the woman's belt. She checked the clip, which was full, then slid it back in and put bullets in the heads of all six vans. Between the cranial injuries and the garlic, she hoped she'd bought herself enough time. Channeling all her power back into speed, she raced for the head car. Once there, she locked the door to the car behind her and used two of the steel poles to bar it shut. The door to the control station was locked so she pulled the door off its hinges. The little one-person compartment was empty. No doubt the train was set for remote operation. None of the text on the control panel was readable in infrared. All of the equipment glowed in various shades of flat gray, depending on how much heat it was putting out. Miriam hit the light switch by the door, then switched her eyes back to normal spectrum vision. Now that she could read the controls, Miriam switched the system back to manual control, and pressed the button labeled Emergency Decoupling. A touch panel lit up, showing a diagram of the train with the coupling points marked in red. Miriam tapped the box in the upper right corner that read Select All. A confirmation message popped up. Decouple all cars? She pushed Yes. A series of soft jerks ran through the train, as one by one the trailing cars decoupled and disappeared from the display. Each of the cars would glide to a halt, using their individual maglev engines to decelerate before sinking gently to the ground. Meanwhile, Miriam's car sped onward, heading for the next open subway station. The vampires would no doubt pursue her on foot, but once she got out of the tunnels, she would have no trouble disappearing into the crowds. On a hunch, she pulled out her mobile phone and turned it off. It was the only way she could think of that they could have tracked her location. They must have captured or killed one of her agents and used his phone to trace back to her. Exiting the control booth, she slid wearily into one of the passenger seats and closed her eyes. Ten seconds later, one of the windows on the opposite side of the train shattered. Wind howled, safety glass showered to the floor. Miriam's ears screamed with pain at the sudden pressure change as the train vented its atmosphere to the depressurized tunnel outside. A pair of legs slipped down from the roof of the car, and Braddock pulled himself inside, his fangs glinting in a death's head grin. Peekaboo! Gasping in the too-thin air, Miriam put all her power into speed and darted around him before he had the chance to act. She threw herself from the train without a second's hesitation. For an instant, there was only the sound. The crunch of snapping bones, oddly muted in the thin atmosphere of the tunnel. Then, pain. A world of it. A universe of it. Desperate agony that erased any sense of time or place or purpose. Her body instinctively threw all of its psychic power into regeneration, knitting her back together with inhuman speed. But from Miriam's perspective, the pain was infinite and eternal. The whine of maglev engines decelerating brought her back to the present. Somewhere, further down the tunnel, Braddock had stopped the car. He would be coming back for her. Miriam struggled to her hands and knees, then finally to her feet, bracing herself against the wall of the tunnel. She looked around for an emergency exit and spotted a sign pointing to the left, back down the way they had come. She staggered down the tunnel, one shaky step in front of another. Her body had exhausted its oxygen stores in the effort to heal herself, and it still hadn't been able to finish the job. All her psychic powers depended on her brain, and her brain needed oxygen. Down here in the tunnels, she barely had enough air to walk and remain conscious, much less to use any of her powers. The emergency exit appeared up ahead, maybe a hundred meters away, an illuminated airlock painted in stripes of red and yellow. A ladder ran up the curving side of the tunnel and into the small alcove that housed the airlock. Miriam kept moving forward, gulping down deep, heaving gasps of air. She could feel the nitrogen boiling out of her blood, setting her lungs on fire and driving sharp lances of pain into her joints. Her vision blurred. A splitting headache began to pound in her temples. Still, she kept moving. By the time she reached the ladder, she had nearly forgotten where she was or what she was trying to accomplish. Part of her just wanted to lie down and go to sleep until the pain went away.
3: No. Keep moving, you old fool. Damn you, keep moving.
0: She put her hands on the rungs, gripped them as tightly as her agonized fingers could manage, and began to pull herself up, one rung at a time. Her tortured joints pleaded for mercy. Her vision dimmed, graying at the edges at first, then blacking out entirely. She kept going, working by touch, feeling for each rung, and then gasping in pain as she pulled herself up. How many rungs were there? She couldn't remember. She knew she had to be nearly there, and it couldn't possibly be much further. She reached up for the next rung and her hand closed on empty air. Panicking, she flailed around, seeking anything to hold on to, And then she had it. Her fingers closed on the handle for the airlock with one last gasp of strength she pulled down on the handle there was a rumbling noise as the hatch slid open but she felt it in the rungs of the ladder more than she heard it she reached up again grasped the frame of the airlock door and began to haul herself up Uh. Uh. then a hand grabbed her foot and pulled hard and she fell three meters to the concrete floor of the tunnel Uh. She landed on her shoulder, which dislocated on impact. Stars danced in front of eyes already blinded by loss of air. It was nowhere near as bad as falling from a moving train, but her body's regenerative powers were long since gone. She gasped and sobbed, unable to move, unable to think. She felt the cold and numbing fingers of unconsciousness begin to wrap themselves around her mind, and part of her welcomed it.
3: No! Get up! Move! Run!
0: but she could not. She felt strong arms wrap themselves around her, cold hands caressing her skin. She couldn't see anything, but she heard the voice.
2: Damn, you look like you're in pretty bad shape there, Miriam. But don't worry. I'll make it all better.
0: The bolts on the door slid open, Danny set down her pencil and turned to face the entrance as Ava slipped inside. The androgen rushed to Danny's side immediately, worry etched on her face.
6: Gods, Danny! Are you all right? When Sasha told us you were at our Texas place, I never imagined something like this.
0: Ava put her hand on Danny's shoulder, offering an embrace. Danny accepted. As she wrapped her arms around the other woman, she whispered,
4: Thanks for coming, Ava. I. I needed to talk to someone who understands what it's like. Of course, of course.
0: Ava soothed, running her hand over Danny's hair in a comforting gesture.
4: You know, all
6: you had to do is ask.
0: They sat down on the edge of the bed together. Ava pulled out a handkerchief and dabbed at the tears running down Danny's face.
6: In earnest, my dear, are you all right? I can't believe they have you just locked up in
4: here.
0: Danny sighed.
4: I'm holding up okay considering. Try not to get too angry with them, okay? I know it looks bad, but they're doing this because they care about me.
0: She looked over at her notepad. The list she'd been working on, who I am when I'm not with Jared, was still disturbingly sparse. Besides, she added in a low voice,
4: it's possible that my judgment has been a little biased lately.
0: Ava put a hand around her in a sideways hug.
4: (sighs)
6: Transition been hitting you hard, has it?
0: Denny laughed bitterly.
6: That's the understatement of the year.
0: Ava fell silent for a moment. At last, she said,
6: I'm sorry. I've made a real hash of things, haven't I?
0: Danny frowned.
6: What do you mean? Well, it's my fault you're in this fix, isn't it? I'm the genius who suggested that you should take the curse.
0: She lowered her head.
6: I thought I was helping you but I think I just bollocks things up even worse.
4: This isn't your fault, Ava. You gave me the idea, but it was meeting Jared that convinced me to go through with it.
0: Danny reached out and touched Ava's chin, gently urging her to look up. She did, and Danny gave her a little half-smile.
4: Besides, if you hadn't suggested it, I wouldn't even exist, so I'm actually kind of grateful.
0: Ava returned the smile, though her eyes still mirrored the sadness that Danny felt herself.
4: Tell me how I can help. I need your input. Ever since Daniel and I split into two people, we've been at each other's throats. Metaphorically, anyway.
0: She added, off Ava's astonished look.
4: Daniel and I have different needs. We want different things. And I need you to teach me how to live with him. How to compromise. Find balance.
0: Ava looked into her eyes for a long moment.
6: Just so we're clear, you're saying that you actually perceive of Daniel as a separate person, not just a different filter over your perception, an alter ego with a different way of looking at the world, but an actual separate
4: personality.
0: Danny nodded.
4: Pretty much, yeah.
0: Ava took Danny's hand and squeezed it.
6: Maybe you'd better start at the beginning.
0: An hour later, Ava walked out of Danny's cell and into the observation room, shifting back to Evan as she did so. You have
7: a problem. Just one?
0: Sasha murmured.
7: That's an improvement. What's wrong?
0: Rebecca asked, in a tone that was not quite bordering on panic, but indicated she was ready to make the trip. Evan gestured over his shoulder.
1: That is the most bifurcated first gen i have ever seen
0: rebecca blinked evan sighed
1: (sighs) look normally a first gen androgyne has only the faintest notion that there's any real difference between himself and herself the differences in thought and behavior are all subconscious which obviously isn't the case with daniel and danny exactly It takes several generations for the curse to alter a family's genetics to the point that they display this sort of independent parallel processing. I've seen sixth-generation androgynes who are less double-minded than Daniel and Danny. Not only do they perceive themselves as separate people, but their desires are divergent enough that they're actually fighting each other.
8: Do you think that's because of Jared?
0: Evans snorted and threw up his hands.
1: (laughs) I don't see what else it could be. I've never seen anything like this before.
0: He paused.
1: Well, actually, that's not true. I have seen one androdyne who took the curse at adulthood and had similar troubles adjusting.
0: He smiled humorlessly.
1: Poor Sod was an orphan. Grew up on the street. Turns out he was a fifth gen and didn't realize it.
0: Sasha winced.
1: Ouch.
7: What happened to him?
1: Had to be institutionalized. Physically speaking, his brain was prepared for the parallel processing, but emotionally, he couldn't cope with the sudden split in his psyche. What?
0: Evan sighed and sat down on the corner of the desk next to the computer monitors.
1: Imagine if you had a twin brother, who suddenly woke from a twenty-year coma, with no memory of his life prior to that moment. He's a fully independent, fully conscious person, but he has no context, no sense of place or identity. Even if you could give him access to all of your memories, that wouldn't tell him who he is. Your memories are too deeply rooted in your own self-image and your identity as a woman. Most high gens take the curse soon after birth, so they have a lifetime of memories for both of their personalities. The first gens who take the curse later in life have to do some adjusting. But they usually just think of themselves as one person with two bodies. The differentiation between their male and female sides is subtle. And it takes years to fully manifest.
7: So Danny has the worst of both worlds. A high-gen split personality with a low-gen's inexperience.
1: Exactly. And that makes her unstable. Danny doesn't know how to be Danny, and Daniel's memories are too different for her to embrace them as hers. Ironically, she was actually doing better before she realized Daniel was still inside her. She could tell herself that he was her old self, and she'd just been reborn as someone new.
0: He grimaced.
1: Now that she knows Daniel is still in there, she feels like those memories belong to him, which leaves her feeling like she has nothing.
8: Except Jared.
1: Except Jared.
0: Rebecca wrung her hands and looked over at Artax, who had been listening quietly in the back corner of the room.
8: Can we fix this? Can we give Danny something that would, I don't know, stabilize her? Help her feel more like a complete
7: person? Or maybe reintegrate her with Daniel?
0: Artax stroked his beard
5: thoughtfully. It might be possible to do both. Sasha, the Collective has psi therapists who can reconstruct the minds of the insane, do they not? Sasha nodded.
7: Yeah, we do. It's a really specialized field of telepathy. Very delicate, very tricky. I've still got seven years of training left before they'll let me tackle something like that.
5: No offense, my dear, but I find that rather comforting. You're far too young to be rebuilding somebody's mind from the ground up. Nevertheless, you must know people who are qualified to perform that sort of work.
7: Sure. You think we could do something like that for Danny? But Danny
8: isn't crazy. Not crazy-crazy, anyway. If I get what you're saying, Evan, the problem is that she feels like she doesn't have a past, and she really doesn't.
5: True... But your therapist may be able to mend that. What if you could give Danny a past? A set of memories that could stand alongside Daniel's? What if you could give her a childhood, an adolescence? A history of choices and decisions that would help her to understand herself?
7: That could work. We could psychically regress her to earlier ages and let her role play through a bunch of VR scenarios without access to Daniel's memories. She'd basically be building up an abridged version of her life with the chance to make her own choices and develop her own identity. But it wouldn't be real.
8: You'd be giving her a bunch of memories of things that never happened.
7: Yeah, but her choices would be real. Life is less about what happens to you than how you respond to it. After we brought her out of this scenario, she'd know that the memories were fictional, but the decisions she made would tell her something real about herself.
5: And if you made those life experiences similar to Daniel's, it would actually bring their two sides closer together. Danny would be able to compare her version of events to Daniel's, and the similarities and differences would help them to understand each other.
8: Do you think that will fix what Jared did to her?
5: It certainly can't hurt. Daniel's soul remembers things about who they are that Danny's soul forgot under Jared's influence. The more we can bring them together... The more Daniel soul will be able to help reverse that damage.
7: Like fixing a strand of damaged DNA by using the sister strand as a template.
0: Rebecca smiled.
7: Daniel would like that analogy.
0: Sasha looked up at Evan.
7: You see any potential problems with this?
0: Evan shrugged, looking uncomfortable.
1: I'm afraid psychotherapy is outside my realm of expertise. It sounds good when you say it, but it also sounds terribly time-consuming.
0: He gave an apologetic smile.
1: And it means trusting the collective, which is something neither Daniel nor Danny have been very keen on.
7: Yeah, well, they're in good company. But I know the therapists who do this stuff, and I think we can trust them. Good enough for me,
0: Rebecca said, levering herself out of her chair.
8: Let's go tell Danny and see what she thinks.
0: Danny listened intently as Sasha outlined the plan. While she was calm on the surface, Rebecca could sense her mixed emotions about the whole idea, as well as the increasing feelings of self doubt that knotted her mind. Rebecca sat on the edge of the bed, close enough to take Danny's hand if she offered it, but far enough away to avoid crowding her. When Sasha finished, Danny sat back in her chair and folded her hands, her eyes going distant.
7: How well do you know the shrinks who would be doing the therapy? Sasha shrugged. I've known all of them for at least a year. "'Longer for the ones who trained me when I was M.I.D. "'If I ever went crazy, I'd trust them to bring me back.'
0: "'Danny nodded.
7: "'Do we have any other options?' "'Not yet. "'But if you aren't comfortable with the idea, "'artax is willing to keep looking for other possibilities.' "'But I'd have to stay here.'
0: "'Sasha grimaced.
7: "'I'm afraid so. "'It's the only way to keep both of you safe "'until you get this sorted out between you.'
0: "'Danny sighed and lowered her head.
7: Look, it's really late, and I need some time to think about this. Take all the time you need. Becca will come by tomorrow to check on you. If you need me for anything, just tell her or Artax, and they'll send for me right away. All
4: right.
0: Danny hesitated, then looked up at
4: each of them in turn. It feels strange to be saying this, but thank you. You forced me to face some things that I probably wouldn't have dealt with on my own.
0: Sasha smiled.
7: You're welcome. Go on and get some rest. I'll be back on Monday.
0: She gave a quick bow and Danny nodded in return. She slipped past Artax and out the door.
1: Best of luck, Danny,
0: Evan said gravely, raising a hand in parting.
1: Call for me, if you need anything.
0: Danny got up and went over to him, wrapping her arms around him in a tight hug.
4: Thanks, Evan. Without you and Ava, I don't know how I would have gotten through any of this.
0: Evan looked surprised at Danny's display of affection. For a moment, he went rigid, blushing as he exchanged a look with Rebecca over Danny's shoulder. Rebecca smiled, and Evan's posture softened. He wrapped his arms around Danny and ran a hand gently over her wavy black hair. It was an oddly paternal gesture, but Danny seemed to appreciate it.
1: You are most
0: welcome. He drew back from the embrace and touched her cheek.
1: Take care of yourselves, all right? She
0: laughed a little at that.
1: (laughs) All right, let's
4: talk to you soon, Evan.
0: He gave her a half bow and walked out. Danny looked up at Artax, who was still holding the door open. She glanced over at Rebecca, then back at the wizard.
4: Give us a minute, okay? And turn off the microphones.
0: Artax met Rebecca's eyes for a moment, then nodded and shut the door. Danny turned to face her. They gazed at each other across the room for a long moment.
4: I'm a real, grade-A, class-one bitch.
0: Rebecca blushed.
4: Danny, it's okay.
0: Danny shook her head firmly.
4: No, it isn't. Those things I said to you before, they were totally uncalled for. And stupid. And cruel.
0: She looked away.
4: And they weren't even true. You didn't kill Daniel... I locked him away, because he wasn't convenient."
0: Rebecca stood up and went over to her, putting a hand on Danny's arm.
8: "'You didn't know. You weren't trying to lock him away. It just happened. It wasn't your fault. It was Jared's,'
0: she thought bitterly, but she didn't say it. Danny flinched, and Rebecca wondered if she'd heard it anyway.
4: "'No, but it's my fault that I said what I did. I'm sorry, Bex. I thought.
0: She sighed, sounding frustrated.
4: I finally had things figured out, and then there you were, making it all complicated again. I thought that I needed to make a clean break with Daniel, with the person I used to be. I thought if I was hard enough, cruel enough, that you'd stop chasing me, that you'd leave me alone so I wouldn't have to deal with how you made me feel.
0: Rebecca swallowed back the lump that was growing in her throat.
8: And how did I make you feel?
0: Danny looked up at her then, her bright blue eyes earnest and full of regret.
8: Like a part of my life was missing.
0: She reached up and touched Rebecca's hair.
4: Maybe the most important part.
0: For one long, dizzying moment, they looked at each other in silence. Then they were kissing, and they clung to each other like a drowning man clings to a life preserver. And Rebecca didn't know whether it had been her who started it or Danny. And then their minds opened up and wrapped around each other, and suddenly it didn't matter whose idea it was.
4: I'm so sorry,
0: Danny's voice said in her mind. I forgive you, Rebecca said back.
4: You came back for us, for both of us. I didn't expect that.
8: I love you. All of you. You are two sides of the same person I fell in love with.
0: Danny's mental voice was tinged with embarrassment and regret.
8: I'm not that person anymore, Bex. Neither is Daniel. I know. And I'm not the person I was when we first fell in love, either. It's okay. It means there's more for us to discover together.
0: A surge of emotion ran through the link, and Rebecca felt tears on both of their faces.
8: I don't know what I ever did to deserve you.
0: Rebecca clutched her even tighter and kissed her hard.
8: You were yourself. That's all I ever asked of you.
0: Danny broke the kiss and put her head over Rebecca's shoulder, crying softly. Rebecca felt Danny's knees starting to give way, and she guided her over to the bed before she lost her balance. They lay there, holding each other, while Danny let go of the burden that had been building up inside her. At last, the tears stopped flowing, and then they just looked at each other again. Danny's hand found hers, and their fingers intertwined. The sensation was both strange and achingly familiar.
4: Could this ever really work?
0: She sounded hesitant and vulnerable.
4: Would Brian and the others ever really accept me?
0: Rebecca ran her thumb gently over Danny's.
8: Well, I haven't gotten any visions about it, but yeah, I think they will.
0: Danny looked down at the patch of bedspread between them.
8: I was afraid,
4: you know, to let myself hope. I started all this to see if I could really handle being with a man. To see if I could be Brian's wife, if that's what it
8: took to be with you.
0: Rebecca gaped, astonished.
8: You did this for me? To be with me?
0: Danny nodded glumly.
4: Jared was supposed to be a test drive, I guess. To see if I could do it.
0: She shrugged one shoulder.
4: Then I started falling in love with him, and it was easier, you know? He made me feel so happy and so alive. It was easier to forget about trying to be with you and just go with what I had.
0: Rebecca reached up and touched Danny's shoulder, then ran her fingertips over Danny's neck and down the line of her jaw.
8: I understand.
0: Then, after a moment...
8: You still love him. I do. God's Bex. I was going to marry him.
4: I still would, but it wouldn't be fair to Daniel. I know that now.
0: She reached up and took Rebecca's hand again.
4: And what Sasha said before, about how I don't know who I am when I'm not with him, she was right. Damn it all, she was right.
0: She shook her head.
4: I just don't know if I'm ready to let my brain get reconstructed by a bunch of collective shrinks.
8: I know.
0: Rebecca squeezed her hand.
8: Do you want me to stay tonight?
0: For a moment, it looked as though Danny might say yes, but then she sighed and sat up.
4: No. Ever since I changed, I've avoided being alone with myself. I'm starting to think that's because I didn't want to look too closely in the mirror. I've got some thinking to do.
0: She smiled wryly.
4: And if you're here, all I'll be thinking about is you.
0: Rebecca returned the smile, and Danny helped her to her feet.
8: All right, then. You do your thinking, and I'll come back with breakfast tomorrow. Then if you're ready, we'll talk. Sounds good.
0: Danny embraced her once more, briefly, and walked her to the door. Rebecca knocked, and a moment later Artax opened it.
8: Good night, Bex. Sweet dreams, Danny.
0: Rebecca stood on tiptoes and kissed her cheek, then stepped out into the hallway. Then the door swung shut, silencing the link between them. The sudden quiet was still jarring, but this time Rebecca felt the stirrings of hope.
8: Maybe it's going to work out after all. Maybe everything's going to be all right.
0: Monday June 24th Miriam started awake like a woman being roused out of a nightmare. She bolted upright, gasping for breath, staring around wildly at her surroundings.
3: Canopy bed, high ceilings, large windows with heavy shutters, antique furniture, master bedroom. Where am I?
0: Her thoughts were disjointed. She remembered darkness and terror and pain.
3: Pain from what?
0: She couldn't remember, but she knew that it had touched every part of her body. That pain was completely gone now, replaced by a ravenous hunger. She felt like she hadn't eaten in a week. Her muscles were filled with a restless energy, a need to move, to get out. And yet...
3: Something's wrong.
0: As an egoist, Miriam had an inhuman awareness of her own body. As her disorientation faded, she realized several things in quick succession... The urgent fight-or-flight response that filled her body was the sort of thing that was normally triggered by adrenaline. Her heart should be pounding, her arteries dilating to handle the increased flow. That wasn't happening. As a matter of fact, her heart wasn't beating at all. Panic kicked in, and Miriam reacted without thinking. She focused her psychometabolic power and channeled it into her heart, willing the recalcitrant muscle to pump, damn you. Pump as if your life depends on it, because it literally does. Her heart clenched and stuttered, seemingly unsure of itself, but at last it settled into a familiar rhythm. The quiet lub-dub was reassuring after the eerie silence of a moment before. Miriam looked down at her skin, which had turned an ashen gray, and watched as color slowly crept into it once more. Color, but not warmth. Though blood was flowing through her body again, her skin was as cold as plastic. She tried to channel more of her power into producing heat, commanding the trillions of mitochondria in her body to work faster at breaking down fuel into energy. There was no response. Miriam sat there in stunned silence. Her body still functioned on the broad scale. Her muscles still moved. Her eyes could see. Her stomach nodded in hunger. At the cellular level, though, everything was wrong. The biochemical processes with which she was so intimately familiar had been replaced by something else. For an egoist of her power, it was like waking up to find that her brain had been transplanted into an automaton... Everything looked right, but it was only a simulation, a mockery of the real thing.
3: A mockery of life. Great maker.
0: The events of Saturday night came rushing back.
3: What day is this? not important.
0: She remembered the desperate flight on the subway car, and the even more desperate flight through the tunnels. She had nearly made it, nearly reached safety. And then... Braddock... She reached up to her neck and found the remains of two puckered scars. Fear and dread rushed through her. She would have shivered had her body still been able to do so. She knew now what it was that she hungered for. She looked at the clock on the wall, an ornate assembly of brass and carved wood. Just after three o'clock, she peered behind the window shutters and saw darkness outside, so obviously that was three a.m.
3: That would make it what? Two hours until sunrise? Three?
0: The solstice had been on Friday, so it would be early. She knew that much. Call it two hours. Two hours to get away from wherever Braddock had taken her, to contact the Hive, to warn them of what had happened to her.
3: And then, to end this.
0: She opened one of the double doors and found herself on a balcony surrounding a high-ceilinged reception hall. Other doors lined the walls on all sides, while overhead a skylight showed the waxing moon. An elaborate spiral staircase descended to one corner of the room below. Miriam followed it down, then paused to take stock of her surroundings. Much like the bedroom, the furnishings in the reception hall spoke of wealth and refinement. Kelaware rugs, polished hardwood floors, and fine artwork on the walls all spoke of an owner who was accustomed to wealth and knew how to distinguish the valuable from the merely expensive. A grand piano sat in one corner of the room, a full-sized harp beside it. White marble statues of two women stood on either side of the front doors, their expressions hard and regal. The inscriptions at the base of the statues identified them as Mistress Lilith and Mistress Talia, the Daedra Lord who had created the vampires and the Queen who now ruled in her place. Miriam tried the door, but it was locked. She tried to force it, but it resisted even her considerable strength. Frustrated, she took a running start and slammed her shoulder against the door. It didn't budge. Somewhere overhead, a warning chime began to sound. A door opened a few meters down the hallway at the far end of the reception hall. The scent filled her nostrils a moment later. It was sweet and tangy, and it promised a satisfaction like nothing she had ever known. Her stomach nodded again, and she felt herself being drawn toward the scent, its power drawing her like a moth to a flame. Braddock was waiting at the entrance, a little smirk playing on the corner of his mouth. He nodded at the open door, a silent instruction to enter. Miriam couldn't have stayed outside in any case. The door led to a lounge, smaller than the reception hall, but still large enough to house two long couches and an enormous high-backed chair. Miriam was surprised to see that the room was not dark and shadowed, but white. White walls, white carpets, white light from the glow panels that covered the ceiling. Even the furniture was upholstered in white leather. In the midst of this blank canvas of a room, the eye was immediately and irresistibly drawn to him. He sat enthroned in the high-backed chair, "'dressed in a dark red smoking jacket of crushed velvet. "'He appeared to be in his early forties, "'with a strong jaw and sharp, distinguished features. "'His dark hair was graying at the temples, "'but with his commanding presence and regal bearing "'it only made him look more dignified. "'His eyes were a subtle, faded green, "'but they drew her gaze and held it with unbreakable strength. "'Miriam was dimly aware of other people in the room.' Six women, all dressed in white, each of a different race or species. Five of them sat at his feet, arrayed around his throne like obedient pets. One of them, a blonde Northlander, was nestled in the chair beside him, one leg draped over his lap. The woman's face was alight with a kind of delirious ecstasy. Blood oozed from two wounds in the side of her neck, its scent filling Miriam's nostrils. Her stomach pleaded with her to take the girl, to taste that blood for herself. But she could do nothing but stare at the man, the man whose eyes held her fast and devoured her will. He spoke. Ah, at last. He smiled without showing his teeth. Welcome to my home, Miriam Bakhtavar. I am Malcolm Altvalos. He gestured at the woman beside him.
2: I would be honored if you would join me for a drink.
0: We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast, right after these messages.
2: Many were infected. Infected with a disease that thinks. A disease that talks. And as the victims finally succumbed, a disease that walks. One man fought back. He resisted the voices. Perry Dawsey carved out pieces of himself in a desperate attempt to survive. He won. But as Perry awakes in a government hospital, he realizes he can still hear those voices. It's not over. And now it's even worse. Because the infection has become contagious contagious is the bloody sequel to scott sigler's horror thriller infected contagious is available in stores december 30th or reserve your copy now at ScottSigler.com slash free get the book the day it comes out because if someone spoils the ending you'll hate yourself enough to use the chicken scissors
4: I've reached the airlock on the Derelict. It's dark inside, but the indicator says there's atmosphere. Looks like it has power and gravity too. I'm going in. The airlock is cycling now. Pressure good. Oxygen level good. Temperature's downright comfortable. I'm taking off my helmet. I'm through the airlock into the main corridor. I can see the bridge from here. It's dark, no activity. Wait, I think I hear something. I'm heading down towards the crew quarters. Oh
8: my.
6: Every week Nobilis brings you a short story, excerpt, or serial that doesn't stop at the bedroom door, or the castle gate, or the airlock. Nobilis.libsen.com. Hi, this is Kim Harrison, author of The Hollows, and you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast.
0: And thanks, Kim, and welcome back, everybody. And for those of you who follow the Hollows series, you may be interested to know that the next novel in the series, White Witch, Black Curse, is coming out this coming March. I'm very excited about it. I absolutely love Kim's books. She is one of my favorite writers in the business, particularly in urban fantasy, because of her character work. And anybody who has enjoyed the character work in Metamorph City, you can probably thank Kim for some of that, because uh, she's definitely been an inspiration to me and has helped me to think about my characters in new and interesting ways. So yes, White Witch, Black Curse coming out this March, or March 2009. Go get it. It's good stuff. And if you haven't followed the rest of the Hollow series, you'll want to start with Dead Witch Walking, which is Kim's first book, and it is now available in both hardcover and mass-market paperback. Okay, enough pimping. I did get some feedback already. from the uh, the time between when we recorded the feedback show and now. And I'm going to hold on to that for now, because Dan and Kitty and I are going to be getting together with Philippa Ballantyne when I get back to San Francisco. And I am really looking forward to that. And we want to do a whole get-together feedback thing again, because it was so much fun last time. If you haven't heard the other half of it, you need to go over to jdsawyer.net and pick up the side that we did for the antithesis show and dan also put a couple of our little rabbit trail conversations on his feed so if you want to get the full story for the craziness that happened that evening that is definitely where you want to go jdsawyer.net antithesis predestination and other games of chance crazy title great series go check it out but yes, if you have any more feedback, please send it in. The voicemail line, as you guys should know by now, has changed. It is now 206-203-0994. You can also email your comments to me at feedback at metamorecity.com. And you can post your messages on the blog, or you can take part in the online discussions at the fan-driven forums, which are at thecursed.org. Hope to hear from many more of you before our upcoming feedback show. we got probably about a week to get those comments in if you want me and Dan and Kitty and Pip to comment on them. So go ahead and send in your stuff as soon as you can. It should be a great time. All right, that is going to do it for tonight. I am going to go ahead and get to bed because it's almost 1 o'clock here. And the rest of you guys have a safe and happy new year. I am going to be on my way home to San Francisco when the new year hits. So hopefully I will get home faster than I got to Detroit this time. Uh, We shall see. Pray for safe travels for me, everybody. And I will talk to you guys again in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this show is provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org.